are Dorothy's Friends Theater Company. Dorothy's Friends Theater Company. Dorothy's Friends Theater Company. Dorothy's Friends Theater Company. More commonly known as DFTC. A group dedicated to presenting positive queer stories on stage. We are a student-run, student-produced theater company at USC. Founded by a group of gay friends who are tired of how most mainstream LGBT media are tragedies. We've produced She Kills Monsters, the award-winning Broadway musical Fun Home, and student-written new work called Projections. All which we are proud to say present the LGBT experience in a positive light. DFTC is committed to telling stories that need to be told. DFTC has really created a space for positive queer stories in an otherwise heteronormative institution. And also, this is my family. In addition to telling uplifting queer stories, DFTC's mission is to unite our diverse community through celebration. We are not afraid to go beyond plays. We produced a podcast, organized and produced variety and cabaret shows featuring all LGBT performers, and produced and performed multiple Shadowcast performances of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. As a queer company, celebrating Pride is imperative to us. This is the 50th anniversary of LA Pride, which makes this DFTC Pride extra special for us here at USC or not USC. <laughs> this year, we are in the midst of a pandemic and human rights revolution, which makes it even more critical to continue sharing stories and hope with our community. Not only of our community, but of other communities as well. During Pride Month especially, and on the 51st anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, it is so important to remember that Black, queer, and trans women were at the forefront of the fight for LGBT equality. Pride would not exist without the Black community. Pride would not exist without the Black community. Pride wouldn't even exist without the Black community. That's why we've invited you here today to the Black Queer Artist Celebration. A DFTC talkback. To celebrate specifically Black, queer, and trans people and all they have done and continue to do for the community. DFTC at this time has no black voices represented on our board. So our mission this Pride and going forward is to uplift and amplify black queer voices. Specifically those connected to the arts. This event is so special because every person on this panel is incredibly dear to us. We have immense respect for them. And cannot express enough how grateful we are that they have agreed to share their wisdom and experience with all of us today. We appreciate you tuning in and happy pride. Happy pride. Happy pride. Happy pride. Happy pride. Happy pride. Happy pride, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Hello out there on Facebook. Uh, my name is Nico Fife. I am the literary manager for Dorothy's Friends Theatre Company, more commonly known as DFTC. And I'd like to welcome you to the Black Queer Artist Celebration, a DFTC talkback. So you might be wondering how you on Facebook and we on Zoom are going to be handling such a talkback, as many of us have been wondering how we handle these types of theatrical events throughout Zoom land in this pandemic. So we do have a way for you to uh, engage with us. So if you have any questions, any comments, any fun ideas, or anything that you want to share with us, feel free to drop them below in the Facebook comments. And we'll be sharing them through to us so that we can get the questions to the panelists and they can answer throughout their time. I'd like to welcome you all for coming. Thank you for coming. We appreciate you and happy Pride. So first, uh, our first guest I'd like to introduce is a dear friend of mine. She was a professor of mine at USC in the School of Dramatic Arts. She's been a spiritual guide, a great mentor, and a great friend and human being. I'd like to welcome 
Miss Alexandra Billings. Am I on? You're on. How do I sound? Wonderful, darling. I'm gonna do the whole thing like this. I'm not gonna move. I'm just gonna do the it whole with this gesture. Yeah, I'm just gonna Gloria do it like Swanson. This. Yes, I'm not moving from Gloria Swanson. Gloria Swanson A. Nico. Perfect. Hi. Hi, Angel. How are you? Well, I'm all right. Who knows? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a. That's such a weird question now, isn't it? Like you ask yes. someone, how are they? And, and I mean, do we really want to know? It's so complicated. It's, you know, 10 minutes ago, I was weeping on the floor naked with applesauce in my mouth. Now I'm fine. Yep, exactly. I've just been eating a salad and now I'm here running a talk back. See, that's we how go it with goes. the punch every minute. So that's first, right. happy pride, Alex. Happy pride. Five O. Five O. Five O, baby. We made it. We made it. It's been barely. 50 years. It's been barely. 50 years. Barely. I mean, listen, by the skin of our teeth. Well, it's really true, isn't it? I mean, they've tried to kill us so many times, haven't they? I've lost Every my day. spoon. Wait. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. That's creepy. Uh, so, yeah, every day. That's true. They're they're trying to kill us. They're trying to kill us. You know, the uh, the thing, you know, I know you asked me to like talk and I was going to meditate and try to figure out what I was going to talk about, but I have no idea. But I'm going to tell you something that's interesting that I noticed yeah. that you all were saying the, the title of your theater company. The Dorothy's Friends Theater Company. How did you come up with that title? Uh, well, it started as um, we were founded by a group of, we're a very new company and we started as a response to um, at USC and in greater theater in general, the lack of positive queer stories. Most of the stories we see are these tragedies of like Laramie Project of horrific murders of AIDS crisis and these characters at like the bottom of their grief. And our founding members didn't want to tell those stories. The queer experience, the LGBT experience is much more than like, as you were saying, they try to kill us every day, but our story is much more than just barely surviving by the skin of our teeth. It is celebratory. It is powerful. It is incredibly positive. It's not a bad thing to be queer. It's not a bad thing to be queer. Not at all. Where did you come up with the name of the company? How did you find that? Well, um, to be very candid, um, yes. the first idea for the name of the company was Dumpster Fire Theater Company because it was that's genius <laughs> ramshackle thrown together by our founding members. That's brilliant. They're by brilliant the way. people. I'm that's so honored to know them. But then I, I need a t-shirt with that on it. Just no Dumpster Fire Theater Company. Yes, just Dumpster Fire. I just want that across my bazoombas. In the like the my name is like tag format, yeah. just yeah. Dumpster yeah. fire. Dumpster but it fire. started as Dumpster Fire Theater Company. And then we, uh, the founding members realized that that might not be the most appropriate name for a queer theater company. <laughs> Who cares? It's brilliant. It's Genius. amazing. But yeah. then it transformed so through good. conversation and through ideas. We wanted to connect, uh, the founding members wanted to connect it back to a lot of the, like the history of the pride movement and how 
Judy right. Garland. So yeah, so that was my question. That's where it's so I sort of I, I was sort of going. So the 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 germination of that of the title of your theater company is historic. I mean, I'm I yeah. assume you all are super smart. Yeah, but I'll bet there's a lot of people out there who don't know. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so yeah, here's let's the thing. So I'm it. gonna say I know. Well, yeah, because it's kind of great. Because as I said, I had no idea what I, I never know what I'm going to talk about when I start talking. But I, I know inspiration always comes to me, especially with you, because you're just you radiate light. So here's Thank the you. thing. So for all of the humans who may not know this, and I'm sure there's many, because this is a uh, not a very well known story, and certainly because we don't ever, I'm using the word ever, we don't ever get taught LGBT. QIA plus history in school at all, ever. Like, do we know Michelangelo's gay? We sure don't. Do we know Joan of Arc was gay? We sure don't. We don't know. We have no idea because no one wants to talk about it. Because being LGBT is not to be celebrated. It's not to be said. That's why when people begin to transition and they find or are searching for gender identity, the only, no one's celebrating, no one. Not their friends, not themselves, not their parent, no one's celebrating. Everybody's in some kind of loss. Uh, I started my transition in 1979, do you believe that? How long, wow. that was just a couple of minutes ago. I know, yeah. it's crazy, I know. And so back then it was still illegal. So I could, I was arrested a couple of times for walking across the street, like walking while trans, I was arrested. The police came out of their cars. They threw me up against the car. They put me in handcuffs and they took me off to jail because I was dressed like a lady. It was ridiculous. Now it sounds insane. Back then it was criminal. It was against the law. And you had to have on, I'm getting to the Dorothy thing, I swear. But you had to have on two articles of your birth gender, what they considered your birth gender's clothing, which means if your birth certificate said male, you had to have on what somebody deemed male clothing. Good morning. So ridiculous. So America, hi. Hi. So, so, so that was... Uh, and that's how they used to entrap us. And remember when I began my transition, it was only seven-ish, eight, nine years after Stonewall. It was very, very new, it wasn't very long. Right. So in the late 1940s, mid 1950s, it, it was not only illegal, it was unheard of. You weren't gay, you weren't a lesbian, you, were, you just weren't any of those things. It was a mental illness and it was punishable either by shock treatment, you were uh, consigned to mental institutions, you were of course thrown in jail, uh, all kinds of things. And what the police used to do is they would entrap they were really after the men because white patriarchy, that's who rules. And once you leave white patriarchy, you better either be dead or on vacation because you don't leave the white patriarchy. That's why they, uh, any kind of trans woman, no matter what race, is a betrayal of the patriarchy, which is why they always come after us first before they come after uh, trans uh, males. 
which they do equally. I'm not saying one is worse than the other, but I'm saying because of the patriarchy, ours reverberates in, in, this, in a really strange way. So they set out to entrap men, homosexual men. And what they did, the police, was that they would go into restrooms, which is where gay men would meet to have sex because they couldn't have sex anywhere else. Anywhere else. Anywhere. So they would, and police would bust in your house, in meetings, in anywhere to make sure to find the gays. Like they had a queerometer, like, doot, 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 doot. oh, go that way. Like they kept trying to find us. So it's crazy. So they would go and they would entrap these men and they would entice them. And then as soon as the, the man would try something, they would arrest them. Bam, that's what they would do. So the gay men, because queers are super smart and we know how to survive and we have for centuries because LGBTQIA plus people have been around since the beginning of time. I need to say that again. We've been, we've been around since the beginning of time. We have a history. We have a foundation. We have always been in the army. We have always been in the Navy. We have always been in the Marines. We have always held positions of power, meaning we've always been Supreme Court judges. We've always been presidents. We've always been uh, CEOs of corporations. We've always been housewives, neighbors, doctors, dentists, psychologists, always. But we've had to lie because of the white male patriarchy. So we've had to live in stealth. But that doesn't mean that we haven't been here. It means we've had to live a damn lie. So in order for us to survive, to find each other, there is this movie called The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> really I don't know if any of you out on Facebook have ever heard of this movie, The Wizard of Oz. I, uh, if you've never heard of it, A, you can't be my friend, and B, um, I have to go. So uh, find it, 1939, Wizard of Oz, Judy Garland. If you don't know who Judy Garland is, my heart breaks for you. But I will help you through this portal. Find me on Instagram and I will help you through the Judy Garland portal. So The Wizard of Oz happens, bam, and the world changes, the queer world changes because The Wizard of Oz is all about acceptance and chosen family. It's all about the divine center and home is found within all of us, we never lose that. That never goes away. They can take away a lot of stuff, but they cannot take away our center. And we, we understood that as queer people. When I say queer people, I mean all of us under the great big huge umbrella. That's what I, that's the definition for me when I use the word queer, that's everybody. Um, so that's just my definition. So the gays, the gay men were like, hmm, well, we're gonna get arrested or shot or killed or all of those things. So how do we find each other? I know, let's get a code. We'll have a code. And the code was to hearken back to the Wizard of Oz. Are you a friend of Dorothy? If you are a friend of Dorothy, meaning Dorothy Gale, the character that Judy Garland played in the Wizard of Oz, if that was true, you couldn't be gayer. So that's how we found each other. We would ask, we'd go to parks or museums or parties and we would just be talking. Hello, how are you? Well, I'm fine. Did you try the dip? Are you a friend of Dorothy's? Yes, here we go. And that's how friends of Dorothy's have. And that way we could elude the police because the police, much like today, were after us back then. And, that, and that's why I love 
that you have that name Our for title. your theater company. Yes. Can I? So we mentioned um, there's a lot of people who talk about. So yes, Dorothy and Judy Garland being the gay icon for yes. so many times. There's seems to be a connection people talk about between Judy Garland's passing and the Stonewall riots. So can you talk a little bit about that and what maybe, I don't know, I've, we've talked about this before. Were you at Stonewall? I was not at Stonewall. I was seven when Stonewall happened. So sorry, not, so that's sorry. That's okay. No, that's okay. What are you please? Are you kidding? Listen, here's the thing about my age. I do not, I, if you think I'm 72, the only thing I ask is that you tell me how fabulous I look. So well, I you always look fabulous. Less. Well, then that's all I care about. See, that's it. I'm happy. I don't have a thing with mine because I was diagnosed with AIDS in nine in the nineteen late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties. And when I was diagnosed, I had, was diagnosed with full blown AIDS. There was one pill; it was called AZT, available at the time, and everyone died. Everyone died. This was back in the day. So this is actually my second viral pandemic. So when I was diagnosed, the doctor came in and said, well, because I didn't know much about it at the time. They said, well, you have this thing and we really don't know how much longer you have. I wasn't even 30. We don't know how much longer you have left on the planet. So here's, here's what we think. This is a doctor telling you, we think you should max out all of your credit cards, like go on a vacation and buy a coat and get a car and go, because you're probably, you probably won't be around to pay the bill. Now, that, that was a horrible thing to say, but at that time he was actually right. That was factual. So every year that I'm alive, Nico, on planet, I'm in celebration mode. So this thing about birthdays, I'm great with it. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't have that thing. But so let's talk about Judy. Can we talk about Judy? Let's talk about still Judy. Have time? Oh I my God, we time. have like two minutes. Okay, good. Uh, I'll try and condense it. Uh, because then I just want to talk to the, to, the, to the youth just for a second. But here's the thing. Judy Gar so 1969, Judy Garland, back in the day, in the 40s and 50s and part of the 60s, Judy Garland was like Lady Gaga. Judy Garland was huge. She, everyone loved her. The women wanted to be her. The men wanted to date her. The parents wanted their, her as their child. She was it. She had. She was an addict and an alcoholic at a time when, when you were those things, you were a terrible person. You weren't in trouble. So they blamed her a lot for her own addictive behavior. And her addictive behavior was poopy. Let's be honest. It was irresponsible and poopy, but she was an addict. Please, if, if I got fired for all the times that I was on too much heroin or too much meth, I wouldn't be sitting here with you now. I would have no job but people kept hiring me, thank God. But they didn't back then. So, uh, when she passed, she passed in 1969, she passed a week before the Stonewall riots happened. Her funeral happened around the same date the first riot happened. Because remember, the Stonewall riots, plural, were several, it wasn't just one riot, it was many. Many. And the first one happened right around the time Judy Garland died. Now, this bar were, were filled with my people, honey. They were all 
uh, uh, trans humans, drag queens, sex workers. I was a sex worker for almost seven or eight years of my life. I worked the streets of Chicago, worked on the corners, went to the Playboy Club, did all kinds of things. Dated a senator, won't tell you who. <laughs> Tune in later. And, uh, uh, you know, homeless, <laughs> how's it going so far? Homeless youth. Uh, African-American, uh, mixed race, just people nobody wanted. Nobody wanted any of us. So they threw us out of this bar, teeny tiny little bar called Stonewall. And that's where we all met. Um, so our love for this princess, because remember, think about, try and think about Judy as Lady Gaga. Think about it just all of a sudden, Lady Gaga just died or Adele just died or Beyonce, God forbid, just passed away. Think about that. Think what would happen to our community. We have gay icons for a reason, darling. We have an enormous amount of taste in our community, unlike the heteronormative people who love Pete Seeger, although Pete Seeger is pretty great. But I'm just saying, we have an enormous amount of taste. We build up careers. Look, yes. the only reason, and this is true, Bette Midler, Cher, Barbara Streisand, Lady Gaga, Madonna, the list goes on, Liza Minnelli, shut up. The reason they're huge is because of the queers, because mm -hmm. we know what we're doing. Halstead, uh, Christian Dior, don't even get me started. So one of our icons passes away. Now you have all these people who we don't have homes. Listen, I lived on the streets of Chicago. I was homeless for a year and a half of my life. And when you're hungry, when you don't have any food, you don't have any clothing, and most of society pretends that you don't exist, when your only safe refuge is with your chosen family in a little dive bar, that becomes everything. Because you see, there are no safe places for us. They don't exist. Still, we make them. They don't exist. A white heteronormative man can go anywhere. Anywhere he goes is his space. A any door is open to him. Every room is his. Where do we go? Well, we have to make space. We carve it out or we bust down the door or we burn down the building or we put up the barricades or we tell people, you can't mess with us anymore, we're done. I'm not mad, I'm done. So that's been true for decades. So we have this little bar and one of our icons suddenly passes away. She wasn't sick. She didn't have cancer. It wasn't a long illness. She died. And we had been raided and raided and raided. And we had been raped. And we had been plotted against. We had been lied to. We had been betrayed by our own government who kept entrapping us, trying to find us, hunting us down simply because of what we were not because of what we believed, because of what we were. And so that night, when we were in this bar with our family, trying to have a good time in secret with all the doors closed and locked and boarded so nobody could see in, because remember how much shame and humiliation we live under, especially in the late 1960s. In come the cops. In come the cops, busting down the door, breaking up the windows, shining their guns, flashing their lights, making sure everybody's illuminated so that their public humiliation and the newspaper people is well documented. And not because of Judy, but in memory of her and our chosen family, 
we had had enough. And that night was the beginning of an entire revolution that has lasted until this day. Garland's gift is undeniable, just her musical gift, but her revolutionary gift should never be forgotten because that's part of our queer history. I, again, as many times with us together, you've rendered me speechless. <laughs> but I, I you are, no, you're of course, but you are completely correct in that. And I think, like you said, the revolution has not stopped and continues to go on. Fun fact for all of our audience viewers, today, June 26th, is the five-year anniversary of same-sex legalization in America. So we... My wife told me that today. Yay! Yay! Um, but we're continuously fighting and continuously making these grand um, gestures. And I know you wanted to talk to the youth. We do have roughly two minutes left. But for all of our much. viewers, um, yeah. we do, if you have questions for Alex, um, please send them in the comments and we'll um, ask her them in the Q&A section um, in about like 20 minutes or so. So Alex, I turn the floor over to you to speak to our youth. I so appreciate that, Nico. I'll, I'll make it very quick, which is difficult for me. <laughs> I, I, wa I wanna get, I'm full of hot air. I wanna say to all of you, to all of the LGBT youth, and when I say youth, I mean 21 years old and younger. Uh, I get messages from five, six, seven-year-old trans kids. And usually what I get are messages like, no one's happy around me. Or messages like, I don't know what to do because I don't know where to go. Or messages like, I have no idea why I feel this way, but I feel bad. So here's what I'm gonna say. It's not much different really than when I began my transition. I'm 58 years old now. I have been in this body, in this trans body, my whole life. So let me be really clear about something. You were not born a mistake. The only people, by chance only, that have made mistakes are the people around you. That's the mistake. So know that the lens that you're looking through is the truth. Everyone else around you, although they may be doing the best they can, they may not, I don't know, but neither do you. That's not your responsibility. That's not your job. You don't have to take care of anybody. You don't have to make sure everybody is all right. You don't have to hold anybody's feelings about who you are. Your only responsibility is service to your community. That's all. It's not about taking people's temperatures. So you don't have to worry if everyone in your own community is doing well. Your light shines because it is truthful light. The best thing you can do truly for everyone else around you, cis, trans, for everyone else around you, the best thing you can do, the greatest medicine, the most beautiful gift is for you to live honestly. So 
as this world continues to crack open, and that's what's happening, it's reverberating and it's cracking open. And the voices of the marginalized are becoming bigger and louder and they're taking up more space. Now it's not just about creating space. Now we're finding that we have actually owned space before. It was just taken away from us. And now we're taking it back. So know your power. There is a great, gorgeous and radiant light in you. When you feel yourself cracking open, that's just more places for the light to shine through. So keep going, keep dreaming, keep believing. That is your greatest gift. Thank you, Alex. Mm -hmm. Speaking as an LGBT youth, your words, again, are powerful and touch many. And I thank you not only for the community or for your service to your community and to my communities and all the communities in between. Thank you for your light, your honesty, and your authenticity. I cannot express in words how grateful I am for you. Thank you, Nico. Um, so just a reminder for everyone, if you have any questions for Alex, um, drop them in the Facebook comments um, and we'll get to them with the Q&A. Um, so our next, uh, we'd like to transition to our next thing. Um, as Alex talked about, we have a long history as the queer community um, throughout all of history. Back to the dawn of time, the queer community has existed. And uh, a couple playwrights and artists, especially in our community and in the Los Angeles area have been taking on this idea through revisionist lenses. And one of those is one of our, our next guest, Donald Jolly. He wrote a play called Bonded that tackles the subject of homosexuality in the time of slavery. So we'd like to present an excerpt scene from the play Bonded, uh, directed by uh, USC student Arya Gandhi, uh, with Cameron Brown playing the role of Sonny and Jordan Davis playing the role of Asa. So I'd like to turn it over to them. I'll, uh, I'll have a good talk. I did not tell her. What's, what's there to tell? Why is it that I cannot jump the broom with you, Sonny? <laughs> Are you laughing because you also wonder why? I'm laughing. I'm laughing because you're a fool. Jump the broom with me. Hey, no way. If jumping the broom is so important, why then did you jump the broom with Lily when you never wanted that? Just, just, just hush your mouth now. If I dream about someone every night and I cannot bear to be separated from that person who haunts my dreams, regardless of how wild or unimaginable those dreams are, you're I, a fool. I suppose it makes us both fools. I ain't no fool. The calm of your voice, Sonny. They string up them kind of fool niggas. The touch of your hand. Sell them down the river, burn the, the fool right out of them with that whip. Your whole being is my only source of hope and salvation in this horrid, wretched place. This, this ain't right, Asa. 
how is it not right for two people who need to be together? It ain't. It ain't. Niggas can't love niggas. No, no, just no way. It ain't right. And it ain't never gonna be right. It ain't never gonna be no place for this except in your dreams. You hear me good. God, I got me a girl to take care of now. Whatever you think then happen ain't gonna happen no more. Whatever you think we got, we ain't got. That girl I got. That girl I got, she'd have been through enough already. And I ain't gonna have to let her go through nothing else. Nothing else. You hear me? Nothing else. We can't. Nick, hush up. The fighting is bloody and violent and indecently wanton. The more they make each other bleed, the more aroused they become. We see Sunny and Asa in the throes of passion. Asa enjoys Sunny's tender touch. This feels like home. Sunny suddenly stops. Sunny tearfully tears himself away from Asa. Sunny, where are you going? Sunny, don't. Sunny leaves without looking back. Sunny! Thank you so much, all of you. Excellent work. Um, I'd now like to turn the floor over to the playwright of Bonded, Donald Jolly, and another playwright in the Los Angeles community, Roger Q. Mason, to discuss the play Bonded and their work individually as playwrights. Donald. Hi, Roger. Yeah. <laughs> can you hear me? I can hear you. I can hear oh you. Oh my Roger. God. Remember the last time we were together in person? We were, I'm, I'm gonna remind you in public because this is a public display of private and personal love. Okay. The last time we were together, we were doing an interview about your work and we were at a coffee bean with no masks on. <laughs> That's right, face to face. Face right? to face. <laughs> and we were in the street of all things doing an interview for Better Lemons. And when I was invited to participate in this program and I found out that you were a part of it, I said, oh, I've got to be in dialogue with Donald. So what's gonna happen for those of y'all legendary children out there listening to us live, we're going to do a little switch on this. I'm gonna talk to Donald a little bit and then I think there's a talk back. And then Donald's gonna talk to me because we're gonna talk a little bit about chosen families, mm -hmm. which ties us back to the brilliance that happened not too long ago with Alex. So Donald, bonded. Yes. Where, can you tell these children a little bit about where that play started? Because it really was ahead of its curve. Now, Black queerness is all the rage in terms of theater programming. All right. But honey, <laughs> uh, what, almost 10 years ago when you were first coming out with this play, 
you were met with dramaturgical consternation. Actually, you know, I wrote the first draft in uh, 2006 as a grad student at USC. And hmm. me, it was really about, well, this is gonna probably sound crazy to people who don't write, but all the writers will understand. Like these voices just started talking to me. <laughs> and they just, I'm like, what are you talking about? And they just started telling me this story that was set uh, in 1820, Virginia. And it's about uh, a group of enslaved people. And what happens when two of the male slaves fall in love with each other. Um, this, for me, it, this play has been, um, you know, for me, it was a search for my lineage, for my queer ancestors, um, mm. because I wasn't seeing a lot of that. I hadn't studied any of that. Um, also, well, it wasn't uh, there to study. Probably. It wasn't there to study. You know, when I was an undergrad, I decided to do a project on um, slave narratives and yeah. just reading for like eroticism in the slave narratives. I had a professor who was very supportive, but I remember I gave a public talk and people looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Right. What, mm. what is this? So, um, you know, that the kernel of that stayed with me. So when I went to grad school, working on this play, and as you mentioned, yeah, there was opposition. There were, and this is just as a grad student trying to do a workshop play. There were people who said it shouldn't be done. Um, I, you know, I, I must admit there were uh, some key faculty at USC who were very, very supportive. Uh, mm. Valina Hasu Houston. Yes, Valina. Um, uh, of, of me being able to share this piece and, and workshop yeah. it, you know, tell the story that I needed to tell. But, um, and also the, the thing, there's only four characters in the play, right? Right. All black. Yeah. Only black actors. Come on, uh, black excellence. Well, at first it was like, oh, are we going to be able to find the black actors? You know, anybody can do it. There was a, uh, 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 bless their hearts, there was a, a, a reading uh, the very, very, very first reading of this play had no mm. Black actors in it. Um, How did so, that work out? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I was told it was a school and- Okay, you know, okay. So, you know, all right, okay, let's do it. Um, right. There were some people who, some of the actors, like I said, bless their hearts, who were very uh, shy about the language. The language is really raw. Yeah. And- um, so it became very clear that me being able to work on this play and me being able to hear it as it should be heard was not gonna happen without the right uh, actors. Now- We had to like really search for, for black actors. There were some students who weren't even acting. <laughs> they weren't even studying acting. Right. When they, when they did it, but it was, uh, but I, I'm very grateful for the support I got at USC to be able to develop this play. And then in 2011, was the very first, um, it's when we had our uh, professional production, uh, the 99C equity waiver. And it was, and that allowed uh, many more people to see it. So it wasn't a school production anymore. It was out here for the public at LATC uh, for people to see it. And that was a legendary moment. I remember going to see that play on Easter Sunday. I, it was 2011, right? 
Yes, that's right. So, so it was Easter Sunday, 2011. And that day I was saved. <laughs> I was saved because I had a roadmap oh. for a queer future. Oh, wow. And for a possibility. And it gave me permission to be the person that I wanted to be. It allowed me to as Mother Taylor Max said, dream the culture forward because you had already set the groundwork for it. Now there's an interesting story that you tell from time to time about actors and directors, the outtakes, people that didn't necessarily agree with the work right. or when, right. when it went out into the world yes. for the first time. Cause these were early days. It, it, I mean, we cannot take for granted that 10 years is like a hundred years in terms of like cultural policy and, and, and cognition change in terms yeah. of our world. I mean, so many things, we have vocabulary well, for, for gender identity now that we didn't have 10 years ago. And exactly. certainly actors have cultural permission to be themselves and to represent their communities in ways that weren't permissible then. Could right. you tell us a little bit about what the casting was after you left USC and went into the world? Because that was yeah. not the easiest feat. Right. Well, the first thing I want to say is um, not directly about casting, but you know, 12 years ago was the whole um, Prop 8 fiasco. Come on. You know, and I was very Open the library. Actually, the so the California Supreme Court had said you can't discriminate against people. Uh, these things have couples for marrying, right? And right. that happened a mere days before my commencement from USC. So oh, wow. we're all celebrating and partying and everything. And then election 2008. And now the, the proposition was to take away the right, because we, we already had the right, see? To take right. away the right from same-sex couples to marry. Right. And um, by a sliver, the majority of voters, um, like 50, one percent uh, voted to take away that right to marry. So mm. bonded as a production came after that time, you know, California. And for me, it felt very fraught because um, I'm from the East Coast and people have this idea of liberal California and liberal Los Angeles. Um, I was very active in that no on Prop 8 campaign. And right. I went door to door. I talked to yeah. people. I had people. Um, say very hateful uh, mm. anti-gay things to me wow. uh, I had some guy try to snatch my sign out of my hand so oh, like all of this was happening um in the the lead up to the production of bonded we so that was a hot room when you when you guys opened right right so you know when we did the casting when we first tried to do the casting um of I have a feeling maybe things have changed now, but you know, uh, casting directors or agents or whatever. Oh, they're calling for for black actors. Let's just send it all to everybody. And we had a lot of people sign up, right before they really knew what the they had. Was. They hadn't read the sides yet. <laughs> they hadn't, they read, hadn't the read the sides. They just knew there was an equity production. <laughs> Y'all was exactly. paying a rehearsal stipend and a nightly show. Right. <laughs> Right. nightly performance fee and people were excited right exactly. then they showed up then, then they, they came to the room uh-oh well, come well, on some people didn't even show up 
after they like <laughs> got the sex. But you know, that's neither here nor there. But I, I believe the people who we found were the exactly the right people. Yeah. Like for me, it was kind of a shock because um, a shock that there were so much resistance to it. Now yeah. at USC undergrads, yeah, there were some undergrads who were like, I'm not, I can't be in that gay play or I'll do the play, but if you take out the gay stuff or um, so in that scene that you just saw from uh, about Sonny right. and Asa, um, they're kissing. They are touching. They are, it's a very intimate moment. And, and violent. It's, it's love right. that comes out of fighting. Right. You know, it, it's, exactly. it's blood and lust and softness and hardness all in one moment. It's a multi-dimensional yeah. emotional gumbo of a scene. Yeah, I like that sort of juxtaposition because the first yes. time you meet Asa, who I should have told everybody beforehand, Asa is new to this farm because he was a slave in New York. He mm. was a houseboy and he got mm. brought down to Virginia um, right. as somebody's inheritance. So um, there were people, for me, it was very important to have that intimacy. The first time you see Asa, um, he gets stripped completely naked, right? And so yeah. you think nudity, it's very erotic, but he's also being um, seasoned, as they say, as a mm. slave, you know, he's getting oiled up, he's getting washed and stuff. So it takes that very erotic moment and turns it on its head to something very uncomfortable because here you are seeing this person in chains yes. being treated like an animal. Um, that's that black dichotomy right exactly and so for me it was very important to have that sort of intimacy uh, affirming intimacy when you have these two uh guys come together um because yes. i i refuse to have that part erased hmm. you know um uh, my at the time my analogy was well, I read The Color Purple and the movie The Color Purple is not what I read in that book. And <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't want you to take and completely desex and take away all that important romance out of this piece. So for me, it's a piece that while it's um, painful yes. and scary, um, it's ultimately affirming. You know, right. the, the people who, who it's intended for they get the affirmation that they're looking for. You know, people like you, you know, there were some people like, I don't wanna see that. What's that about, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I remember audiences, we had talkbacks and there were people weeping. And I remember one guy just started crying and he said, you just told the story of my life. You know, he had mm. done all he needed to do to sort of fit into whatever heteronormative frame and here was someone. Take off the gray flannel suit, honey, right. and find your P flag. Let's well, be over it. Well, really break the chains. And yes. that's what happens in this play. They have yes. to uh, both literally and figuratively break the chains um, mm. to be who they are. You know, And that's where I find affirmation in this story. And that's why it's important um, to um, tell this story for me. Um, and to have it set in the period in which it's set, because here are people who are fighting for their humanity, right? Now- You can't have your humanity without that, fighting uh, for their right to love, whoever they want That's right. And, and I think part of the dehumanizing aspect of, of, of the way you depict queerness and its perception in slavery is that it is, it is disallowed and it is 
literally beaten out. And it's not just, but the the fact of the matter is it has been internalized because we don't see Massa in the play, but we feel the judgment. We feel the lash that he has used to penetrate these people on a psychic spiritual level. So much that even when he is not there, we still feel the judgment and the hate that he has imbued in them. Right. That now they start hating themselves. And, and hating and, themselves. And in fact, self-hate is one of the great tools of prejudice. Right. The key, the key of uh, the key to bias is to program people to now police and hate themselves. Yes. Exactly. And what we have to do now in our radicalness of queer affirmation is fight that with supreme love. With supreme love. You know, uh, Marlon Riggs said uh, black men loving black men is the revolutionary act. Come and I was kind on. of, you know, taking that. And, and also the other thing in this play, even though, you know, it's about slavery, it's also got um, this sort of, it, to me, it was about black people in relationship to other black people. Yes. How FUBU. They, Come on how, and give us our FUBU. How can they all be free if yes. they're not, if they're going to leave some of them behind? There's no right. freedom, you know, um, with that. So um, that was very important for me to have them wrestle with each other and, you know, learn what it means to be um, who they are, to be alive, to be a human. Mm. Um, and you, when you say that about you know these slave stories where um, the humanity is stripped from it, uh, our ancestors loved each other. They loved each other in every imaginable way and even unimaginable way. They had to love each other because that's the only way for them to survive. And uh-huh. uh, they fought back, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's this is who that play is for. For those people who I say were left in the margins of history or erased from. Uh, said margins of history, you know. Now, we're going to pause right there. Okay. Because guess what it's time for? Time for me it's to time... shut <laughs> No, no, no. It's time for you and Alex to, to chat with the question and answer folks from these, for, from these two talks. So okay. I'm going to go off and okay. I think Nico. Okay, we'll be back to you. Yeah, we'll be coming back to you real quick, Roger. Uh, I... But... Thank you both uh, for sharing uh, both of your art and who you are in your uh, individualism and your authenticity. Um, so we do have a couple questions that have come in. Um, our first is for Alex. Um, it's kind of a big question with multiple parts, but I'm sure you'll be able to handle it. Don't, don't fret. Okay. Um, so how does living as a trans woman with AIDS adjust your life to live in such a state of celebration? You come into the Zoom smiling and joking with me about Gloria Swanson. And through in this society, you uh, deal with so many injustices, especially as a mixed black trans woman with, who's worked as a sex worker, who has been an addict. With all these injustices in your history and in who, like, enacted against you, how can you live in such a place of celebration and joy? Well, you know, that's not always true. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I really meant what I said when I said, you know, 15 minutes ago, I was weeping into my applesauce. That was actually true. 
I, uh, I, I literally live across the street. This has just happened an hour and a half ago. This is how my life works. But this is how the divine works in my life. And there is a group of seven. I put it on my Instagram story. There's a group of seven cisgender white folk right across from where I live, all on a porch, no masks, all huddled together, just having a party. And the fact that they are so unbelievably unkind and have no regard for what we're all going through, because you see, they, as I said, every room is theirs. So they can walk into every room. They can walk in to um, the emergency room and show their ID and nobody's gonna worry about their gender. They can go, I'll never forget when I had my, I had appendicitis and I had my appendix out and I was out and my wife was standing next to the surgeon and she turned to the surgeon and said, by the way, my wife is, is transgender. And the surgeon said, I don't know what that means. The surgeon said that. So they don't have to worry about that. So they don't worry about the pandemic. They don't worry about the virus because it's not, it's not a part of who they are. And as I was sitting here eating, looking out of my window and filming them, which I did, I was weeping, I was shattering. I was weeping for humanity. I was weeping for my brothers and sisters of color. I was weeping for the marginalized. I was weeping for my trans sisters. I was weeping for our history, but I'll tell you what I don't weep for, and that's the future. I believe in humanity. Donald, you, I'm sorry, I'm gonna go off track just for a second. You're a genius, and I'll tell you why you're a genius. You're a genius because, don't laugh at me, listen to what I'm saying to you. You're a genius because how you see the human condition is not just about being intelligent or witty or artistic. All of those things are absolutely true. You have foresight and you have foresight, not just into the black experience, although that's true. You have foresight into the human experience. Those two human beings that had that conversation about we shouldn't love each other has been said throughout the ages. You've written a piece that reverberates throughout time, my friend. That's your genius. And that's not, everybody doesn't have that kind of gift. I needed to say that. Okay, keep going. Oh, thank you, thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, so actually our next question um, comes from Donald for you, Alex. <laughs> oh. Donald, would you like to ask your question yourself? Sure, let me, let me. So, so Alex, I'm very curious about, um, can you tell us about how you came into uh, the theater and performing and uh, what role the arts have played uh, in your life and being able to really, for you to be able to have control, you know, of uh, things. <laughs> well, that's, love. thank you for the question, Donald. I feel, um, I, uh, I had, but my father was a musical director uh, at the LA Civic Light Opera House, which is long gone now, but which was a very big deal many years ago. And he was there for about 10 or 15 years. He was a conductor and he was also a music teacher at Harbor College, which is a community college. He was there for many, many years. And so every summer he would do a summer musical. And when my parents divorced, I would spend the summers with my dad. And that started around five or six years old. And so when I was a, a, a young little tot, I was around musical theater and queers, like my whole life. I was just raised by gay people. So it's so weird because gay was never 
foreign to me. It was the straight people that scared the hell out of me. <laughs> I never understood what the hell they were talking about. Right. Like we would be talking about Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli and they would talk about, you know, football and the Rams. I'm like, you people have no taste and I have no time. So right. that's how theater sort of began. And my dad, what my dad did was instill in me a love for everything about the theater. So before I could be on stage as an actor, I swept the stage, I worked in the makeup room, I sold tickets, um, I built sets, which was hilarious. I wish they had film of like 10 year old queer me with a hammer. It's not a good <laughs> idea for anybody. But so I learned to appreciate what everybody did, which is why I, I have such a love for stage managers and the crew and um, it's true on movie sets too. I, I'm fascinated not only with what they do, but I also know that they have a gift and, and it matters to the telling of the story. And so musical theater really was my first foray into any kind of theater. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a musical theater whore. That's just me. Yeah, <laughs> great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, our next question is for you, Donald. Um, oh. So how do you, as a playwright, um, how do you deal with actors or directors? Like how did you with the play Bonded and how do you in your current work deal with actors or directors who want to remove the themes of blackness, the themes of queerness from your work? How do you reconcile that? And do you have any advice for possibly um, starting artists of color and how they can work um, right without apologizing for who they are. You know, I'm really fortunate to have found um, really supportive people along my journey of life, uh, and particularly the LA theater community. The intimate LA theater scene um, has been a, a, just a safe haven for me. Um, I worked with a guy by the name of John Lawrence Rivera who runs um, Playwrights Arena, and he does, Playwrights Arena has been around for uh, 28 years this year, and it is a, the oldest Los Angeles uh, intimate theater company to do only works by LA-based theater artists. So uh, John, uh, who I met as a, a student at USC, really took me under his wings, and um, for leaving the student world to my professional life, you know, he was that bridge for me. Now, that being said, there's a lot of theater and a lot of places who, um, as people are waking up to now, that have not been um, welcome or as welcome as they think they are to people of color, to uh, the BIPOC community. Um, so for me, it's about finding your, they say find your tribe, right? Find your people because, you know, not everybody's going to love you. Um, but if you find the people who um, are willing to support you and that you are willing to support, uh, that can make all the difference. Um, now, I do believe that with this play, uh, Bonded, particularly at the time that I wrote it, there were people who told me, yeah, it's a good play, but this would never be commercial, right? So I, I'm trying to imagine a time before, uh, also it was before streaming, 
before Moonlight. Now, I, I, I love Moonlight um, and all the acclaim that that, that movie received um, because before Moonlight, um, if you would see stuff like that, it would probably be in, you know, small art house films or, you know, sneaking away a VHS. Um, but for that to, to be in the mainstream and be a part of the mainstream consciousness uh, uh, inspired me uh, to keep going forward to tell these stories. Um, and, you know, as we know, not every place is going to be accepting, but it's about finding those places that are. Um, um, so there are times where I have to, um, I've had to feel like I'm choosing, okay, is this going to be my Black play or is this going to be my queer play? Um, and, you know, don't put them both together. Uh, I, I think particularly in the past 10 years, uh, we have come to a place where people are starting to understand that um, this whole idea of intersectionality and intersectionalities where um, these stories uh, not only deserve to be told, but uh, there are lots of people who want to hear them, you know, and not just what people would consider the, the niche audience for them. Um, so I, I don't know if that really <laughs> answer the, the question. I thought that was but, a great answer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. Things are still changing. And I've seen tremendous change from when I first got to LA. Um, and I know, you know, there are some people who, as Roger and I alluded to, who read the play and who flat out, you know, professional people who said, I'm not doing this with that um, homosexuality in it. You know, and big name people, you know, people who've gone on to do other things or have done things in the past who have said that to me. And those people still exist. Um, and that sort of thinking still exists, but we have to persist beyond that. And we have to find the helpers, you know, that Mr. Rogers talks about, find those helpers and, and, and be those helpers when we can uh, to really uh, tell our stories and allow every voice uh, to be heard and not just the, the cishet, white cishet um, voice. Great, thank you. Um, <laughs> another one for you, Donald. Um, oh. So how does it make you as a black playwright and as mm -hmm. a black artist, how does it make you feel to see so few black people in the room to work on black stories, whether it is actors, but also tech people, stage managers, yeah. that how does that emotionally, intellectually, how does that make you feel and how do you respond? Um, how can I say this politically, uh, very diplomatically? Okay, so um, there is a movement right now um, across America and a lot of things and I'm really pleased to see this movement in the theater, uh, We See You, where it started with 300 theater audiences coming together and really making uh, a stand for these racist practices that have gone on in theater and how we really need to be anti-racist, you know? And I really, I was really encouraged by that um, and signed my name, you know, with those people. Um, because the truth is um, even in regional theaters, even on Broadway, these overtly racist and even, you know, uh, subconsciously racist, racist with the um, 
microaggressions, that stuff happens. You know, I've spent my entire professional career as the only black person, you know, on a team <laughs> or one of two black people. And uh, even my entire undergrad uh, experience, you know, being that only black person. So I've had a lot of uh, um, experience with that. It can be, it can really wear you down if you let it, right? The thing is finding a way to um, ignore those voices or transform. I, I like the idea of uh, taking poison and turning it into medicine. How do you transform all that negativity, that uh, marginalization? How do you transform it into something um, powerful? For me, I put it in my art, you know? And uh, I think that's what I love about theater and I love about the arts is you just take these things and you just take all the hatred, every little racist thing, every time someone tells you, oh, you're so articulate or, you know, or you're one of the good ones or, you know, every time, take all of that and all of the, that frustration and put it in my art, you know, and let my art do the speaking. And um, many times people are, um, it's easier for them to hear it <laughs> from the art, you know, you're giving them, not only are you turning that poison into medicine, you're giving a little spoonful of sugar with it, right? Um, and they don't even realize what's happening. And the power of the arts and the power of um, that sort of representation cannot be overstated. My sister, uh, for example, my sister, we grew up in a home that was, for all intents and purposes, anti-gay. It was not welcome to be gay. So I came out when I left for school, but then, you know, I eventually came out to my family and it was really fraught with my father and my sister. Um, my sister was the only person in my family to come out here to see Bonded. But I know it had an effect on her because then she had this conversation with me and she's like, you know, I saw your play and I was watching this thing on TV and I just realized you didn't choose to be gay. People don't choose to be gay, you know? Um, and it, it sounds very like simple in a way, but we have to remember that not everybody is where we are in terms of understanding things across this country, you know? I mean, look at uh, this administration, you know? I, I like to think, well, everybody is just somebody who could eventually, you know, they have that fundamental good in them. and maybe it's buried under decades of muck but maybe they'll wake up to the truth about their lives and the truth about all of our lives is that we are all infinitely valuable right and that's why you can't discriminate against people um so we as artists i feel have a responsibility to keep planting those seeds you know yes we want immediate change many of us want colossal immediate change um you know it's like putting things in a microwave and hit it up and we protested in the streets and now everything's better. That's not the truth. You know, even um, as Alex was talking about Stonewall uh, 51 years ago, these things take, they don't just take time, but it takes tremendous effort from all of us. And we have to keep working for it. Frederick Douglass said, uh, no struggle, 
no progress, right? And here is a guy who was born into slavery, who taught himself how to read, who created his own sense of freedom, who fled to take care of control of his life and then became this world-class uh, orator. He also um, you know, was at Seneca Falls and working for the women's suffrage, you know. Um, he knows, he knew he lived a life of tremendous struggle, right? For, so not just for progress for himself, but for progress for humanity. So we have to just keep working at it. We have to plant every seed. That's what I do with my arts. Um, you know, and it doesn't always have to be quote unquote political, but because I mean, just having a queer body on the stage or queer bodies loving each other, that in and of itself is a political act, right? So for me, I'm like, let's just do it because I'm not doing it because of politics. I'm doing it because I want to see me and I want other people to see themselves, right? And to have that affirmation. All my work, I believe, is about queer affirmation because I think that's what we need. Um, so. <laughs> Thank you. Did I no, answer that right? <laughs> I, more than enough. Okay, Thank you, Donald. Great. Um, we do have one last question before we wrap up this section, and it is for Roger, actually. So if Roger would like to come back on camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Child. Y'all wanted me for something. I was over here. I was over here painting my nails. Okay, go ahead. She was in the green room <laughs> taking a nap. She was, in, she was in the green room having her build a bird. Uh, honey. Yes, 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 God. So question? our question for you, Roger, and I think this is a good transition into your conversation with Donald pretty well. Um, one of our board members who is watching this is obsessed and would love to hear you talk about more about your experience with Bonded and your work and elaborating more on the roadmap to a queer future that you said. Oh, Lord. Lord, first of all, here's part of the roadmap. So we're not even gonna, that's, that has not been copyrighted yet. So, I mean, I'm working on a lot of personal reflections right now because I think that what we have to do is we just have to force our presence and the prowess of our presence into being. Because unless we fight for it, we're not going to get it because obviously self-advocacy and protest are the only ways that radical change can occur. And I think what's going on right now, especially in dialogues about theater um, policies of diversity and inclusion, these, these not only cries, but demands from black artists who are saying, these are the ways on stage and off in which I'm feeling ignored, misconstrued, or disrespected. And I need that to change. And here I am to air all the ways that it's happened publicly because so much bias and so much prejudice occurs in, in private because now it's just one word against the other. And in the court of public opinion, you know, it, it, alluding back to what Alex says, the cisgender heteronormative power structure is always gonna be able to justify its, what it's doing and what it's saying 
because perhaps the people adjudicating these matters might look like that person and they mm -hmm. might come from a similar um, socioeconomic and polit political and cultural background. So now where do we find our spaces to be ourselves? How do we find our, our ways? Well, we have to just make them, you know? And so I don't know what the, what was the question? Well, because <laughs> it took girl, me on a whole other road. Th that's what the question is. Now you've put, you, we're talking about creating these spaces. So now we're starting to create this space and you've created your work, especially with your play softer. Um, yeah. How do you continue through this work through on your roadmap to a career future, starting with bonded, leading to your future now? It, I'll, it I'll starts. Floor, hold yeah. on, before we get to, I'll turn the floor completely over to you and Donald to continue. Um, I'd like to thank you, Alex, um, for the Q&A. Alex will be back at the end. We're going to be doing another Q&A at the end section. So feel free to stick around if you have any more questions for Alex. Um, but we'll be continuing on. So I'll turn the floor over to uh, Roger and Donald now. Lord, we done burned up the joint. They, they couldn't, I, I have to go back to this issue of how do we create queer futures okay. and, and how am I doing it? Yes. I, I'll tell you what I'm doing. The first thing I'm doing is I'm taking the, the pronoun I out mm. because I spent so many years trying to justify and claim space for myself as a writer, as a performer because I wrote in a different form, because I discussed issues and subject matters that were not always commercial, because I, you know, I, I did not behave in ways that were bureaucratically, you know, on par with what was expected. I, I was not one of the good ones, Donna. <laughs> you won. <laughs> <Told> my ass. <laughs> I was bad from the minute I came out the womb. I never will forget I was in first grade and I used to, they used to have us wear these patent leather shoes and I had flat feet. And I remember taking them shoes off and that woman threw me out the room. And I said, y'all need to have some shoes with some room for, for wide feet, flat feet, collapsed arches. One size does not fit all. And I'm here to let you know That's right. that I do not fit into your binary heteronormative mode. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the first thing to recognize is how much time was spent trying to find myself. And now enough about me, let me give to the next generation. Mm. And so really what's going on now is the work is dedicated to mentorship. How can I find the next group of queer folks? And it's not always age-based. You can have a 65 year old woman who, to come to you and say, I would like to learn how to write plays. And in playwright years, they've just been born because they just recognized that they were one of the children. Mm. And there's mentorship in that too. Because yes. I think we are given a tremendous gift as artists. We are given, I believe, the luxury of supreme and sublime self-perception. And in knowing ourselves mm -hmm. and in knowing other people and in knowing, in spending a lot of time in the dealings of human nature, we are able, I believe, 
to have insights that most people don't have the luxury of time to make space for because they are out here trying to just live their everyday lives. Uh But it is our occupation. It is in fact our spiritual duty because I need to take us back to ancient Egypt, not ancient Greece. I'm gonna stir the pot again because I'm still not one of the good ones. But I really need us to return to the Africanist nature of Western drama, the history of Western drama. Even Herodotus writes that it was the ritual of Ast and Asar, which the Greeks then called Isis and Osiris. This idea of rememberment. Come on, Toni Morrison. She picked it up from somewhere. Yes. Okay. The idea of taking a dismembered body, Osiris's body, I'll call, I'll call him by his Western name so that folks don't get lost, but I still want us to know Ast and Asar, just so we have that. So we have that okra and that chicken grease when we come through, <laughs> but we'll call it Osiris. When Osiris is killed and his body is dismembered and scattered over upper and lower Egypt, Mm-hmm. A mourning occurs, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, and a spiritual journey is enacted in which Isis goes and finds a golden phallus, puts on him, and in that process of loving him and wanting to remember him, it is through that desire for rememory mm-hmm. that she puts him back together and makes him not only human, but divine. The idea of rememberment allows us to touch the sublime and the divine. And when we, when when the ancient Egyptians would participate in that ritual, reenacting the rememberment, the pageant, or the passion play, as the Christians would later call this ritual, there was a way in which through performing that, they returned to providence. They return to the sublime. So yes. performance and the ritual of theatrical performance is our gateway into the sublime. Yes. It is how we touch divinity. Mm. Yes. You know, so that's first that so first of all, giving back to others saying to whom much is given, much is expected in return. I've been given the opportunity to go to all these fancy schools, thanks to my grandmother, two aunts, and my daddy and mama. Now let me share what I've learned with the, with the next generation of these children. Absolutely. And then number two, I understand that I'm coming from a lineage of a profession that was civically funded, so, NEA and, 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 and all these other, y'all need to catch up, civically funded and considered a spiritual necessity for the continuance of the society. If we don't do these rituals, the crops won't grow. That's right. The creek will rise too high and the crops will be flooded and we will not continue on. There is a spiritual ramification for participating in the ritual of performance. Uh-huh. And there is a spiritual damnation for not understanding. Uh-huh. So number two is understanding that we exist as writers, as artists in a holy place. Uh-huh. And that every opportunity 
opportunity we get to perform, to write, to paint a floor, to staple posters, to write an e-blast, to answer Instagrams about something from an excited person that just learned about work. We are committing a holy and essential act. And the third component of it is knowing that the effect of this work is simultaneously ephemeral and everlasting. The theater is constantly dying and coming back to life, being recalled and being forgotten in the same moment, the same second. Yes. Samuel Beckett reminds you of that in Waiting for Godot. Yeah. One day we shall live, one day we shall die, the same moment, the same second. Tell us about the resurrection. (laughs) So that's where we start. Now, I'm going to shut up because I think you've got to ask me some questions about about something. (laughs) So my my question is... um, (laughs) whenever you say this I I laugh because I'm like what are you talking about yeah you say that I inspired getting ripped up you know that that I I inspired you and uh, that that sort of thing so tell me about the sort of evolution of softer yeah Um, softer was the gift to do with that (laughs) softer was the gift that kept on giving it started out as as a short play um that that has a, a very interesting story behind it that is not PG. So I'll, I'll leave that one. But what I will say is that it started out as a short play and it was mentored for many years by several people as a play. Mm-hmm. In about 2015, I'll say, well, first of all, I want, because one, we're on the hallowed ground. My, my, many folks in my family are Trojans. And mm-hmm. so one of the Trojans that, that championed that play, in addition to you, was Jonathan Munoz Prue, who's somebody that means a great deal to me mm-hmm. and also to this listenership here and to the theater department. So I think we yes. need to say his name because yes. he is continuing to go on to do extremely important work in terms of visibility mm-hmm. for, queer, for queer folks and for folks of color. So I just yes. want to do that. So after Softer was a play, then it became a short film that went on and, and did the Pan-African Film Festival and also Outshine and it's got another, um, it's got another virtual thing that we'll do now with, a com- uh, I think it's called We Make Films or something, some other festival. Then it became a TV pilot and also an audio show that we're working on now, my creative team. Um, I have, I'm part of a duo called Holder and Mason. My, my partner in crime is Lovell Holder. And mm. uh, I, I say to the world, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm just a cabaret singer and that man is my, is my music director. So he always <laughs> makes sure I'm on key, but- Don't um, go the piano. <laughs> don't go without that pianist, honey. <laughs> but what I will say is, so I guess I should tell people very briefly what the play is about. The, the play basically picks up in a way where bonded thematically leaves off because now we're at 1865. Mm-hmm. Originally it was 1865 because we said it on Juneteenth, mm-hmm. but then because Juneteenth wasn't known in those early days 
of 2014. Uh, we moved it. We moved it to 1863 into Georgia, something a little bit more iconic that folks would recognize, you know, because of Gone with the Wind and such. And it essentially, is an Emancipation Day uh, play for two, short play, in which a slave master has been cohabiting with his body servant mm -hmm. and now he has to give him up and you know parting is such sweet sorrow <laughs> so we have about a 10 minute tete-a-tete -tete about you know ownership of self and we'll I, I know we have seven minutes chloe's saying so i've got about two more before i go into the monologue but mm -hmm. we'll, we'll do a little piece of it so i'll set up for that but okay go ahead no, no. So, so, um, and how so was that? How did, how, <laughs> I never, I never, so what happened was because before that play, I was afraid to show my queerness in my writing. I was still afraid to show it after I'd seen that play. I went to the play, but I knew what the play was about. And I, I took the train and I went by myself. I did not take my family. I went by myself to see the play. I felt very scared that I was there because I was still not out. In 2014, I was still, no, the 2011, I'm sorry, when I saw your play, I was still not out. Now, what closet would have me is, I don't know what the hell was, I thought I was in, but I was in some kind of closet. Ugh, the closet but, of our minds. Come on, baby. That's oh. a whole other podcast conversation about, okay. about the psychosocial nature of queerness and, and self-entrapment. We're mm -hmm. not going to do that one. Okay. <laughs> but what I will say is when I saw that play, I found a kindred spirit. I found a young Ivy League, East Coast coming to LA, queer black playwright who understood historicism, who understood revisionism, and who understood the poetics of metatheatrical language. Because the way that you engage set and silence and, and, and physical metaphor so the play was not just functioning on a sociological level oh. of creating radical change. It was also creating radical change aesthetically. Oh. And so now I had a forefather and whether you wanted to or not, <laughs> you became my fairy godmother. Yeah. <laughs> you became a mentor to me because I was such in such desperate need of some way to come out on the page and in life because I had been so gender policed. You know, I'm, I'm non-binary. So I had been non-binary and also a homosexual. And so I, and they're not the same. We can't conflate one's right. sexual orientation and their gender, and gender expression. So yes. I, we need to enumerate that for the children. Yes. We don't need to enumerate that for them. They're telling us. <laughs> they are telling they're, us. They're telling us. But what I want to say is that I was so desperate for a, 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 a road to freedom. And what you were saying about the politics of visibility, 
I am here. And because you are here, you have to grapple with seeing me as I am. And because of that, a revolution is occurring. It occurs first one person to another. One for, yes, exactly. You know, it occurs on a personal level and then it becomes social and then it becomes civic and then it becomes legislative. Mm-hmm. But it's one person at a time. Yeah. And so for me, just seeing you and seeing your work and seeing that audience was full. I'll never forget that night, all the days of my life. And so you had become family to me. Yes. You had become part of my chosen theatrical family here in Los Angeles. I'm a native Angelino. I spent a lot of years back East and then in Chicago, but LA will always be my home. Mm. Yes. It's the place, it's the place from whence all my stories ultimately come. And yes. for me to come back home, because I was just three years out of undergrad, oh. to come back home and find in you a hero, a mentor, a roadmap, and an affirmer, that was all I needed. And from there, I was okay. <laughs> I, I knew I was going to be all right. Literally, on that Easter Sunday, I, I knew I was saved. Oh, wow. I think we probably should do one more shorter one and then I'll go into the read because I'm sure Chloe's going to tell us soon. <laughs> yeah. See, I, yeah. So in terms of queer futures, yeah. what do you envision, um, whether it's in theater or anywhere? What, what are we you looking as, to get to? We as queer people, so I, and I consider you part of this too. Oh, yeah. Because we are creating a new queer canon in which we are the norm, in which our stories are the progenitors and the subjects of dramatic action that the masses are consuming. Yes. That is what we are building. That is the queer future. Yes. Now, I'm going to go ahead and do a Sankofa moment because we okay. have to look back in order to look forward. Absolutely. So I want to take folks back first to 2014, 15. I was in Chicago. I was studying under the very provocative um, Thomas Bradshaw. And he's very interested in the idea of showing sexuality on stage. And so I wrote a little play, it was called Softer. And it, was, it, it plays that old trick that you use when you write a 10 minute play. Are you in the room or out of the room? Right. You know, and so everyone was both in the room and out of the room. And so now I take you in the play back to 1863. All right. I take you back to Georgia. I take you to Ishmael, who is a body servant. He is, he is delivering this monologue to his master, both of them are 18. And his master is called Mr. Charlie. And he's got a girlfriend named Miss Ann. So for those of (laughs) y'all, for those of y'all from the old school that know what I'm talking about, we're doing that that funny thing. And anybody who wants to ask who's Miss Ann and Mr. Charlie, they can do that in the question and answer. Okay. And so he's knocked him out. They've gotten into a, uh, they've come to blows and he, and Charlie's asked him, if I ain't good enough for you, 
I, I ain't good enough for you now that you're free, am I? And then Charlie knocks him out. And this is the response. Yeah, I liked it. Sometimes when you're inside of me, I feel like I'm shooting straight to the moon. But other times you can't control yourself. You fill me so hard at night that it, that it hurt to take to the stool in the morning. You don't care what I want. And all the while I can't say nothing. I can't move. I just got to take it. Then last week, when you sent me into town to the general store by myself, I met Eloise. I'd seen her around before when you and I was together but she was surprised to see me alone. She thought I'd been freed. I told her I was. I told her I was buying some groceries for a new house I didn't have yet, but I figured if I bought these beans and that sugar and carried them around long enough, I was gonna find me a place with a cupboard to put them in. She laughed. I noticed her full wet lips for the first time. A high yellow girl, she looked like the sun just before it dies for the night. I told her she had a pretty smile and she better watch out before somebody tries to suck the lips right off of her face. She took me in the back and she showed me things about my body that I ain't never known. She listened to me. She gave me what I wanted. And ever since then, whenever you pin me down here, I rub my loins against this bed and pretend like I'm lying on top of her. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm gonna move in with Eloise. That's that. Thank you, Roger. That was beautiful. And thank you both to you and uh, Donald for your conversation. That was deeply touching and very inspirational. I'd like to introduce our next guest. Oh, if you have any questions for Roger or Donald, feel free to drop them in the chat on Facebook and we'll be able to ask them at the next Q&A section. So now I'd like to introduce a woman who needs no introduction. She's currently the co-head of, of undergraduate acting at USC and also the head of the diversity and inclusion board for the School of Dramatic Arts, Miss Anita Deshiel-Sparks. Hello, hello everybody. Good, good, good evening in, uh, from where I am in, in Los Angeles. Um, and wherever you may be watching um, and tuning in. Uh, thank you, Nico. Thank you, um, uh, Brittany and Chloe and other members of uh, Dorothy and Friends Theater Company and um, my fellow panelists. I, I really am here, my presence here tonight uh, as a part of this beautiful um, celebration really is as an ally, uh, first and foremost, and, um, and also as a fellow uh, artivist, a fellow artist uh, of color, um, a fellow activist. And I really wanted to talk about 
to share a few thoughts and then to uh, have my fellow um, panelists and colleagues and uh, join into the conversation and the dialogue, but really about the, the power of um, art and activism. And I just think it's, it's, I'm reminded of when the beautiful intro we had that sort of set the stage and the frame for tonight's conversation. Um, and really centering the fact that this moment uh, from the 50 year origin and generation of it, um, Stonewall, that it would not have occurred, it would not have happened um, if it wasn't for black trans women saying enough to police brutality and police misconduct. And, 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 and the moment where this current moment and climate where we are trying to um, honor and acknowledge and stand in unity and solidarity of the lives of Black people um, and being centered in the context of the movement that we're in now that focuses on equality, still connected to the ending of police violence. Um, but, the, but in it all, it's really trying to center Black people's humanity and how you can't have that work in this moment um, without Black trans women and Black and trans people with being left out of that conversation um, and this sort of fight where we are now for creating uh, equality for all. And I just thought it was so um, interesting that that was how the, the history that you all shared in that opening video montage and just wanting to share a few thoughts and perspectives about how the power and the need for, for that momentum of not only being in the midst of a moment, um, in this moment where we're centering our focus and attention, uh, but that it really does continue to be a synergistic movement uh, forward. And how in my own work, as um, an artist, an actor, a director, and an educator, um, I too, like my colleagues here on the panel, brilliant uh, students that comprise Dorothy and Friends, the need to create the counter narrative, to realize that the power really does lie within us to reimagine and um, create definitions of ourselves, all of ourselves, um, the crooked and the straight, that we can have the courage uh, to allow all of that to be exposed and all of that to be seen and to be visible in the work that we do and how just that act of courage, just that act of authenticity and um, exposure of humanity, just that act of being, our very presence of being in certain spaces, in certain moments, among certain people, telling certain stories, that in and of itself is an act of revolution. And I, when I think about the um, opportunities and the blessings that I have had 
to really hold space and to make choices and decisions about what kind of story I want to center, what kind of identities and aspects of our humanity that I want to foreground and raise up. A common thread and connective tissue in that work over 20 some odd years really has been about how do I make visible those individuals and those stories and experiences that have gone untalked of, unheard of, and unseen? How can I uh, thoughtfully bring honor and dignity to those who have been um, dismissed and devalued and marginalized as if their very, very uh, presence and the very breath and the life of their body um, was not valued as much as other people's lives and breaths and bodies. So that's important in terms of the representation that we create on stage or on screen, when we have the choice and when we have the power to do it, we have to take it. And we have to take it and we have to take it with responsibility. I feel deeply responsible for the representation and the image that I put forth. Um, and, and trying to do that in a way that is, that is, that is whole, that is whole, um, that we can see the complexity of all of those different emotions and feelings and wants and needs that make us all together human, that, that, that really, um, through that specificity, it really allows and opens the portal for our universality and everybody uh, to find themselves and to see themselves and to hear themselves um, in the story that's being told um, and the truth that's being honored. And so I'm, I'm deeply inspired um, by the conversation and, I, I, and I'm just excited and energized to, to, to bring them uh, the panelists um, into the flow here in just a moment. But I've been deeply inspired and touched um, on multiple levels of hearing your work, hearing your words. Of course, I've seen and been and have experienced um, across time and history, uh, but also in this moment now, seeing you, hearing you talk about your creative process, hearing the stories and the words that you've uttered and written, and, and really centering radical love, centering radical change, a centering radical transformation um, about not depicting the world as it is or as it was, but, but how and what it could be. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful about the new canon, the new queer canon and dramaturgy that is that, that is and that continues to, uh, to unfold, um, that's being written right now, right now, uh, as we speak in this moment and as we're present in this moment. And um, I'm just so thankful and excited to be, be a part of it um, and to continue to do what I can to uh, lift my voice, um, to be a, um, a catalyst for for change and healthy, healthy um, disruption. 
healthy disruption. And, um, and it's just so interesting because I, I think about the power of um, our bodies. Roger was talking about how, what happens when we are dismembered? What happens when we are um, separated and we're fractured from the very center and core and sense of ourselves that, that, that Alex talked about so beautifully earlier? What happens? What happens? We, we then are in a process where we are actively trying to put ourselves back together again. We are actively trying to find a way to become whole again. And I think that really is the power of what art can do. It's the power of what it is to be a maker, a maker. We are makers as creative entities. We take something out of nothing all the time. What an extraordinary gift of possibility that, that we have in the work that we have been given the responsibility and the privilege to do. Um, and so I'm reminded of that and how in every space that I am in, this black female cisgendered heteronormative body is a counter narrative and it is an act of revolution every single space that I move across and betwixt and between within. And, and, and I, just, I just have to know that, that that is a part of my truth and my reality moving through the world. But it's also a part of um, the power that I hold and the power that each of us hold in the bodies that we are in and in the bodies that we have created for ourselves that, that have just been calling out to, to be in and So I just wanted to share this, this poem um, that was a part of the Transgender Day of Remembrance called The Moon is Trans that was written by Joshua Jennifer Espinanza. And it says this, the moon is trans. From this moment forward, the moon is trans. You don't get to write about the moon anymore unless you respect that. You don't get to talk to the moon anymore unless you use her correct pronouns. You don't get to send men to the moon anymore unless their job is to bow down before her and apologize for the sins of the earth. She is waiting for you pulling at you softly, telling you to shut the fuck up already, please. Scientists theorized that the moon was one part of the earth that broke off when the another planet struck it. Eve came from Adam's rib, etc. But do you believe in the power of not listening to the inside of your own head? I believe in the power of you not listening to the inside of your own head. This is all upside down. We should be talking about the ways that blood 
is similar to the part of outer space between the earth and the moon, but we're busy drawing it instead. The moon is often described as dead, though she is very much alive. The moon has not known the feeling of not wanting to be dead for any extended period of time in all of her existence, but she is not delicate and she is not weak. She is constantly moving away from you the only way that she can. She never turns her face from you because of what you might do. And she, the moon, will outlive everything that you know. So with that said, I would love to invite um, my comrades, um, my peers into the conversation, into the dialogue, into the moment. Um, and I wanted to pose a question to them uh, before we go into, if I may, before we go into um, uh, the Q and A uh, with the questions from the audience. My people, my people, my people, are you gonna become visible with me in the moment? Hello, hello. <laughs> we here, we here. <laughs> We here, we here. I know, I know. We gotta I kick know. our jaws up off the floor. Oh my! We we literally just you mic dropped. We couldn't do it anymore. We were like doing a whole oh, amen corner. No, 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 girl, no, no, Lord, no. Ooh. we're done. We're done. No. no, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it, girl. You done brought it up and brought it forward. Betwixt and between. Betwixt that was our and between. between. We were living. Between, we were taking notes the entire time. So you have no idea, Anita, what we've been doing in that comment. Honey, betwixt and between. <laughs> but is that not the space? Is that not the space? Girl, I'm gonna tell you something. Listen, I'm gonna tell you something right now. Cause I can't, I can't with you. And also, let me just let me just say this. That you that your the ability to tie in humanity with with what you were talking about was really the big red circle for me. That that all of us, not just all of us are in this fight together, but that the marginalized are all of in this fight together that the space we are making we are the makers you brought so many t-shirts into yeah. this room i can't even tell you <laughs> but we are the makers that's my that's new motto six, that's it right there yes. i mean the creative yeah. spirit of the because marginalized voices we've all been pushed down for so long we have so much to say i can't tell you how many of the oppressors i've spoken to where i've said you know what we're gonna make a space and we all, the marginalized, we have something to say. And every time I say that, they open their mouths. Oh, and I'd like to, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. Nobody asked you. Nobody asked that's, that's you. Right. That's right, that's right. No one has asked you anything. Here's what's gonna happen now. We're gonna speak and y'all are gonna shut up. 
So this mm-hmm. idea that our creative space is now open, uh-huh. this, this we are the makers, that piece of text is, uh, that is the divine center of creativity. That's it right there, because that's who we are. And that's how I started to talk about the queer icons and why we, yeah. why no one has been listening to us for generations. We've been screaming mm-hmm. down a well of loss and grief for generations. I'm going right And now down. finally, I feel right like the lid, honey, I feel like the lid is up. So I, everybody just need, the oppressor needs to just sit down and to, to, to. Yeah, yes. Did you yes, have a Anne. question for us? <laughs> yes, yes, and <laughs> did you? You had a question for my us, question. right? Somewhere. So my question was. Child. Well, my question was. <laughs> we just, we just can, can, Cola, can we just take one moment to just say that we are here as 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 people of color, speaking our minds living unapologetically in public. Yes. Which yes. for so long yes. in and of itself due to anti-loitering laws yes, yes. was illegal. Yes. I could not sit and just be right. when I came out of slavery. Yes. So I just want to say mm. the fact that we are able to hold space and articulate our thoughts, our hopes, our dreams is in and of itself, and these people are listening, that in and of itself is a radical and necessary moment for us to celebrate. Yes. We are here and we ain't going nowhere. Mm. We ain't going nowhere. And if you don't like it, I don't care. Cause I'm gonna keep living. Cause I know my life is is divinely inspired and worth and worth surviving. Yes. Yes. I got yes. me some chicken on a bone, honey. Come. Wait, wait a minute. What's you, Alex? I can't do this no more. Was it what Janelle Monet says? We eat wings and we throw the bones on the ground. That's right. <laughs> That's what she. <laughs> They said it let us let them eat cake. No, we eat wings and we throw the bones on the ground. Thank you, Janelle. Come on, Janelle. Okay, I'm sorry, Anita. You were and asking. I love, and I love and I love and I love Janelle. Well, I love I love all of who and what she represents in all her multimedia. Do you know what yes. I mean? I love yes. that. I love that. I love that. No, I you you know what's interesting? See, this is It's, I didn't even have to ask the question, mm, mm. Is, 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 is what I want to say. Mm. That, that, mm. That, that what is coming forth um, and what everybody, what you're speaking to and speaking out of just in the moment, uh, organically, instinctively, kinetically, mm. um, is I, I didn't even have to ask the question. You're already answering, which is what I think is so beautiful and powerful. Hmm. Of just of of just the the um, of what it is to really be in our truth. Um, 
to be in the skin that we are in and to in each of our different spheres and the ways that we move through the world uh, how we honor that um, authenticity that was actually what I was going to ask but again I I it was happening we were we were we were living it and doing it just in well, the moment in the way that we were exactly what Roger exactly what Roger just said you can't get us all in a room together because if you get us all in a room together it's anarchy it's beautiful chaos <laughs> the outside right. world. If you put us all in a room together, we are. It's true. If you put us all in a room together, if you put the marginalized in one room, yeah. everybody on the outside yeah. is terrified because you see, we are, we are loud. We are, are out of control. Yep. We are. We are uh, uh, over emotional. We are all those things. So you cannot, mm -hmm. so when we all get in a room like this, it, yeah. it, 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 it happens, honey. That's the spiritual yeah. connection yeah. that we have. Yeah, absolutely. When you put us no. all in a room. That's why I say, I am sick and tired of people telling me that I need to make a safe space. I don't need to make a safe space. I do not need to make a safe space. Every space I go to is a safe space. And that's true from now until the end of time, because I'm done. I'm done, done. You don't need to yeah. make a safe space because we have to define what safety means for ourselves because the majority culture's definition of safety may not necessarily be extended at all times to us well, as people mm -hmm. of color. That's true. The, the, mm -hmm. issue is, mm -hmm. the issue is that mm -hmm. sometimes it is convenient and in vogue to mm -hmm. affirm voices of color and sometimes it is considered dangerous to do so. You know, we mm -hmm. have to remember that the Harlem Renaissance started, what, just a hundred years ago? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. out of World War I and the disillusionment, there's this sudden need to start patronizing Black art, Black queer art. Let me just yes. make sure we're, we're home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And then once mm -hmm. that black mm -hmm. queer art starts questioning the power structure in a way that's uncomfortable and disquieting, all of a sudden mm -hmm. that them grants and that money and those patrons start drying up. And so mm -hmm. Langston Hughes, years later, writes in mm -hmm. The Crisis an article called When the Negro Was in Vogue, remembering when yes, yes. it was yep. fashionable. So here's the thing, Alex is right. We have mm -hmm. to make safety wherever we are and, and we have to make it sustainable for ourselves. Because if we don't, will be in vogue and the next Langston Hughes will be writing another unfortunate memento about the moment we're in. Now that's the sad truth. 
is that it's not mm -hmm. just about supporting black folks and, and, and black ideas when, when power structures are being called out for systemic racism. Don't just do it when it's popular. Just don't just do it when it's trending on Instagram. Yes. Do it all the time, mm -hmm. every day. But also we have to do for ourselves as we always have. Mm -hmm. Because we've known one thing, when we are in a room together, the power of solidarity mm -hmm. is absolutely invincible. Yes. yes. Nico's here. I think he's Wonderful. he's looking at us sideways. What's going on, chap? <laughs> I just I feel so bad because you're all talking about not being limited and having true space and this divine chaos. No, and really. my literal job is to come in here and rein in the chaos. And I feel no, we have to go, 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 go. go ahead, okay. go. We'll go, go quickly through these last couple questions and okay. then we'll sign off for the night. So, Donna Roger. We'll do, we'll do like a quick lightning round. Oh, or great. As lightning as we can make it. My favorite color um, is magenta, next. Perfect. Um, <laughs> first question, done. Second question. Um, so when writing and making art, how do you both as artists, as playwrights, find a compromise in yourself between telling the story that you want to tell and taking audience into consideration with the commercial aspects of that always people are considering in this theatrical world? How do you compromise that if you do compromise it and who do you, as artists, try to write for? Donald, you go first. There, I, I didn't realize it when I first decided to be a playwright, but there are so many playwrights, right? And it's not like people, at least for me, are knocking down my door, begging for my writing, right? So for me, I have to tell the story that needs to escape from me, you know? Um, so in, in terms of compromise, um, First, tell the story, you know? First, tell the story. Um, there will be no need to compromise if you tell the story and if you tell the truth. You know, I have to start with truth. I can't start with commercial things. Yeah, okay, maybe there's some things you have to help audiences understand, whatever. But you know what? I, I, I take my cues from Toni Morrison, who, you know, someone was telling her, uh, you know, yeah, when I read your stuff, I have to read it once and then read it over again to get it. And she said, that, my dear, is called reading. You know, she wasn't trying to like, feed it to you. So, okay, well, I'm just going to tell that story. She told her story. I'm just going to tell the story. That's what you got to do, you know? Uh, and, and also remember to remain honest and sincere. I think... I'll say yes and tell your story, be honest and sincere. Don't stoop to conquer, as Shirley Horn said when she was asked to be a girl singer instead of playing the piano and singing. I shall not stoop to conquer. I don't think that trying to write for a perceived ideal audience will make your work any stronger or more successful. What will make you more successful is telling your most authentic version of a story and then finding those allies that will support and foster its future. That brings exactly. me to roadmap point two. Find <laughs> your people, find the literary managers, find the directors, find the arts administrators, 
Find the intellectuals that will write about your work and help explain to those who may not have the cultural vocabulary yet to digest it, how they should perceive it. Make space for yourself. And then the third point and the last point on this, because I'm assuming this is a question from a young aspiring artist trying to make their way, always know that audiences can handle so much more than they are perceived to be able to handle. If Donald's career in persistence and talent has not taught us anything else, it has taught us this, that they were always ready. They just had to catch up to themselves because look what he dreamed up in 2006. And now every other play in New York is black queer visibility, this black joy, that historical revisionism, but it was already happening. Amazing, thank you. Um, our next question, um, also for Donald Roger, how for audience members are clamoring to read your work after both of your excerpts. <laughs> How can they get your work? What, what we'll do, well, two things for me. So one, my email address, I will, I will right? Are we able to do that? Do you, want, do you want to give it to them? How do you do that? I, we can. I'm not going to give out your email without your personal permission. I'm giving you permission. But Got also, it. but you can do that for whoever has been asking for the work. But also the other thing that I will do is I will send you Nico softer and I'll also send you my play Lavender Men. Thank you. So that those that were interested, you can share it with them. Amazing. I will be honest. I was asking that question a lot for myself but also for other audience members. So thank you for that. Perfect. Donald, um, they looking for you, Chef. Oh. <laughs> um, I am putting in the comment section, my website and my uh, email address. Oh, how do you so, do that? Let's start there. I, I don't know if I did it right. <laughs> but you know, we'll figure it out. You can find me, I can be found. <sighs> yeah. So if you're on the Facebook, Donald just commented um, on the Facebook post, his email and his website. Um, so if you want to access his work, definitely do that. And then um, either Roger, you can comment your email right now or we'll be posting it within I'm the gonna next. I'm going to do that right now. What, uh, just keep going and I'll do that now. Brilliant. Okay. And then our last question um, was directed at Alex, but I think the whole panel can answer. We mentioned a lot chosen families and the solidarity of the queer family, of the black family, of the queer black family. How do you all as your roles as mentors, as mothers, as fathers, as parental, as like figures to the incoming generations, how do you not only comp not compromise, but work through your own relation to the work and to um, the reality that we're living, but impart that wisdom onto the next generation and how, like, do you have any advice for the next generation who's willing to pick up the reins that you have gifted us? Mm. I don't know if that mm. question made any sense, but Anita, yes. 
Well, the one, this is just the first thing that uh, came across my mind that I just wanted to offer is um, be fearless, um, be unapologetic, and um, don't wait for permission to do what it is that you want to do or create or explore. Um, don't wait for permission. Just take it, do it. Thank you, Anita. Anyone else? Well, I, I, I feel like I talked to them already, you know? So <laughs> I, I really don't I have anything to add, I'd like to hear from 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 these other two humans because I I think I said what I needed to say to these beautiful people. You I know think. what? You've got to. I, I really feel like I I laid it out there already too. It's about mentorship. You know, it it really is about fostering the next generation, and giving to those people the tools that we may not have had because each generation is only as good as what it can share and give uh, uh, unrequitedly back. Don't ask for anything back. Not unrequited, that was the wrong adverb, but uh, without asking for anything in return. Selflessly is the, is, is the adverb I was looking for. Selfless giving, I think, is how we build the road to, to the next moment. And you know, when you guys called us, I, I didn't even have to think. I knew that I, because I remember when I was 22, Chow, Nico, you are light years, all of you, Brittany, Ari, Chloe, all of y'all, you all have tools. You all have names for who you are and how you view and perceive yourself that I didn't have. I was coming up wearing a little white suit with a red bow tie to have a, a, a pink stuffed animal cat looking like this. That you got out of that closet, right? At two, at two years old. At two years old. That's like, the closet I, you were in. I, and, and it took me 31 years. Oh. To go from this child uh, to this sister. Uh, 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 uh. So these children have so much that uh, we didn't have. And just mm -hmm. having names for who we are. Mm -hmm. That is speaking it into existence because to be invisible is to not speak. That's where Alex brought us when we started, to not speak it, to not name it, to not allow it to be manifest in the world. You can't love, you can't speak, you can't be. Now they're names. It took us 50 years from the first brick to now have a name. Now we've got a name. Now what are we going to do with it? How are we gonna use that name to lift the next children up? How are we gonna use that name to help those that are still lost? How are we gonna help them use that name to build a road where we won't need the name one day? That's queer futurism. You know, what if we existed in a world past visibility politics? Visibility politics exists because we've been rendered invisible. What if we just learn to love unconditionally? Oh. Huh? Wow. 
Mic dropped. I'm rocking. I'm in my <laughs> rocking chair and I'm rocking. But that's that's where we are. And that's where I hope we go from here. And art leads the way because art imagines the future reality that is already in the universe, but the people with their socializations have to get all of those inhibitions and biases and laws and perceptions out of the way to finally come back to that infantile, unmitigated truth. But art and artists who live in perpetual dreaming in the childlike wonder of joy and pain, they dream that forward. We imagine it because as I said, we have the ability to touch the divine through our work. So we're existing in creative and intuitive space that's outside the confines of socialized reality. So through art, we can dream the culture forward. And I think that's our great obligation. Here we are in a university forum with people who are learning how to think and make policy and change the world and become leaders of the future. And if there were one thing that I would say to everybody here that's at USC or coming out of it, it's think long and hard about how you can constructively take the education and the bureaucratic intelligence that you've learned, how to navigate through power structures, how to speak to administrators, all of these different things are also part of your education too. Figure out how to use those things to genuinely, actionably, and irrevocably change the world for better. Mm -hmm. I think that I just want to add one thing yes. uh, uh, to, uh, channel the spirit of Marsha P. Johnson, who said, uh, no pride for some of us without liberation for all of us. Come on, Amen. mama. Come on, mama. That's it. So make it happen. <laughs> and it's up to us to make it happen. Mm. Yes. Um, on that note, I'd like to thank all of you for participating in this panel. I am overfilled with emotional uh, with emotions with inspiration with everything and i'm still hungry and i'm still ready for and i wish if we weren't 15 minutes over time i would yeah i would love a wing thank you alex um but if we weren't 15 minutes over time i would say we can keep going and running for ages but um, we do have to wrap up so thank you all for your work thank you nico thank you authentic. for doing this all of you Thank you, everybody. Everybody who's working behind the scenes and that we can't see. Thank you for putting this together. Incredible. I, I, I'm th thrilled to be with all of these teachers. Just thrilled. Thank you so much yes. for everybody. Thank everybody. You. Thank you all so thank much. You. Thank you. It's, it's, thank, yes. Thank, thank you. you. This is wonderful. Amazing. Amazing. And much then to all of our audience members, thank you for coming in and attending. We had so much fun. I've written down at least three pages of quotes. Are I have so many notes. I so took, many. I took film and put it on my Instagram when Miss Thing was talking. <laughs> <laughs> I posted it, honey. Yes. I'm nobody's uh, fool. 
so I think all the thing that is left to say is thank you for attending. Thank you all for participating. And I, it is our job to, as Roger said, dream the culture forward. Yeah. So as we go forward, I challenge not only myself and DFTC, but all of you watching, dream the culture forward so we can move forward. And as Anita said, with healthy disruption, grow and change as a society. So thank you all for attending. Thanks everyone. Thank love and light. Love and light. Have a beautiful rest of your night, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Night, y'all. Night, y'all. Bye.